0: I'm always interested in when people can look at objects and um, understand how they can be used, but don't necessarily want to go into them or use them or sit in them. I have the same feeling myself, when you can kind of understand how something's supposed to function and you don't necessarily have the desire to actually play with it. So I I'm, mean, I'm, I'm always thinking about that with my work. Like, yes, here's something where you can turn a crank and it can sound an air raid siren. But I also am just as interested in the potential or what it looks like as a possibility.
1: Hi, this is Libby. And this is Roberta. And this is Art Blog Radio. Jess Perlitz is a sculptor who makes structures for people to interact with. She has created wooden lookout platforms to climb up on and reinforced concrete huts to sit in. We've seen her works around Philadelphia, and we're here in her studio in the 915 Spring Garden building. So, Jess, you're a Canadian. How'd you come to be in Philadelphia?
0: I ended up coming to Philadelphia for graduate school. I went to Tyler. Up until that point, I was in Toronto, where I am from.
2: Did you grow up with art? Did you have artistic parents who encouraged you? I did.
0: Um, I have a mother who's a painter, Um, and I spent uh, many uh, days after school in her studio waiting for her to be done.
1: What? So you could get your hands on the
0: paints? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, at that point, it was to go home, but yes, <laughs>
1: eventually. What were your go-to materials while you were noodling around? Um,
0: she, I remember she, she had a big uh, roll of butcher paper, and to keep me busy, she had um, charcoal and markers. And so, for a long time, I was working on the world's biggest circus, and I would just slowly roll out the craft paper along the floor and work on the circus. Yes,
1: yeah, so speaking of circuses, uh, your works are whimsical and playful. Um, But underneath, there's a lot of content, power and relationships and vulnerability. Is that a fair assessment?
0: Definitely. I've spent a lot of time um, watching myself playing on jungle gyms as a kid, now watching uh, the way people play in those situations. And especially with kids, we have the clearest example of that play is work. Uh, Much of the stuff that goes on within the games or in the parks or on the play structures also mimic and echo the world in which we live in terms of like power relationships and how to gain control over a space.
2: Can you give an example of your work? We're looking in your studio at two huts that are made out of reinforced concrete. Can you tell us what, what went on with people in these structures? Sure. I, uh, what's it called, too? What's the name of that? Um, what's the name of these pieces that we're looking at? Yeah.
0: Um, this one is, uh, one is called hut. Um, and it's a <laughs> very inventive title. It's, it's a small hut like structure with many flags on the top, white flags. And the other one is a kind of uh, cone like sh- um, structure that is, has a seat inside of it um, that's quite tall. Uh, that one is called Yesterday and Tomorrow. I'm interested in how, when you're in them, they become like these magical forts, um, gnome houses, but they also become kind of uh, places of authority. Um, especially the one with the seat becomes a throne. But at the same time, it does also uh, look like a very funny kind of retro-futuristic uh, structure. And um, so that at the same time as like having a place of authority when you're sitting in it, there's also a kind of a, a silliness and there's also a way of hiding.
1: So why yesterday, today, and tomorrow?
0: I think I was thinking like just in terms of um, those kind of utopian Futuristic structures. I think Buckminster Fuller made me is like the most clearest example that we have. Um, that there's always this this feeling about them that are simultaneously futuristic but also nostalgic in this interesting way. And I, and I'm not sure if that's the way that we read utopian structures or if that's actually built into the objects themselves. But I had this feeling with this this hut that in a lot of my work there's something to do when you when you climb up the structure for example you can pump water or you can look through a viewer or you can speak through a megaphone and that in these huts they were really they're really minimal there's really nothing that you can do except for sort of be in an enclosed space within the gallery
1: So were these used in a real world situation or were they or are they just in your studio? Well they're in my
0: studio one one was uh, the hut has been installed um, at Tyler, at the old Tyler Gallery. It has also been installed at Heidi Cho Projects in New York. Um, and the the Yesterday and Tomorrow sculpture has been installed at uh, Q Arts Foundation in New York.
2: And were these indoors or outdoors? Indoors, they were indoors made for galleries. indoor gallery spaces. And did you observe people interacting with them? I did. Anything unusual that you didn't expect? Um, I'm always
0: interested in when people can look at objects and um, understand how they can be used but don't necessarily want to go into them or use them or sit in them i have the same feeling myself when you can kind of understand how something's supposed to function and you don't necessarily have the desire to actually play with it so i, I and mean, i'm always thinking about that with my work in terms of like yes here's something you know a sculpture where you can turn a crank and it can sound an air raid siren, but I also am just as interested in the potential or what it looks like as a possibility.
2: So in other words you're not controlling the way some artists are very controlling about the way they want people to interact with their pieces. You're sort of more the anthropologist looking at how people interact?
0: I I think the struggle around interactive or participatory work is that the more specific it is, or the, uh, both on my part as an artist in terms of how I want people to use it, but also in terms of a narrowness of how uh, people can interact with it, the more limited the conversation is. Thinking about even just that simple back to kids on a, on a, on a playground, that, that play is play but it's also war. And that it is fun, but it's also the most serious way of exploring and understanding the world, that, that that it's actually much more complicated than what happens at first. And sometimes if it's just that you push a button and it lights up, I don't um, I don't know that it takes me to those kind of complex layered spaces that I'm interested in.
1: So when it was in a gallery, are you saying that people that some people didn't interact or that all people didn't interact? And is there a difference between how people react in public and in, in gallery spaces. Is a gal- is gallery space limited, perhaps?
0: There is a feeling of when I, I've noticed when I've installed stuff that's participatory or again, there's a way to interact with it inside a gallery. I'm, I find that I'm much more conscious of the symbolic I mean, even me, when I'm in a museum or gallery, I have to ask, like, can I touch this? I would never actually just touch it, whereas if I'm outdoors, I'm very ready to, like, climb over a fence, pull on something, you know, it is of the world, that we have the gallery so that we can have a space that's, like, separate so that we understand that we're thinking about the world, so that I feel like people are actually much more, I mean, we have a lot of work now where people use it, touch it, speak through it, we, we kind of understand that that's a norm now but I still think that um, people ask, and the fact that you have to ask means that I I need to allow for the the idea that a lot of people are not gonna use it, or a lot of people don't feel comfortable being on display, and that the minute you're asked to crank something or climb up something, there is an understanding that you are becoming part of the work, and that you're also making yourself a little vulnerable, and I completely understand when people don't wanna do that.
2: Let's talk about your newest piece, The um, Podium you made a speaker's podium and it has a bunch of, they're not megaphones but you could talk through them.
0: Yeah, it's actually a a series of appropriated brass instruments. There's a sousaphone and a tuba and and part of a trumpet that are in this podium that wrap around the speaker. Um, It's a piece that's for Temple Contemporary. It is, yes, it's a space for people to speak. It's a podium for them to address a crowd. And it's really just quite simply drawing attention to the voice of the person that's speaking.
1: Um, so can you talk to us a little bit about what it's been like uh, working in Philadelphia and you know, how have you kept your career going, what are the directions you've had to take to keep things percolating?
0: I've, I've loved Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, I chose Tyler because there was a sense of community which I think you know, is uh, somewhat of a microcosm of actually what Philadelphia is like at large. Um, the idea of going to somewhere like New York, let's say, um, was not that appealing to me. I don't work well when I feel self-conscious or competitive, and I actually was genuinely interested in having more of a, a community and a conversation, but being close enough to somewhere, let's say, like New York, or in a city where that was able to sustain its own galleries and museums somewhat that I could kind of incubate in a way for a while.
2: So as someone who wanted community, are you a person that likes to collaborate on sculpture? Have you collaborated? I have
0: collaborated. Um, I find collaboration very, very difficult, um, <laughs> incredibly difficult. I love it because it makes me realize that, like how I'm stubborn and the narrowness in which I've become. And it forces me to, to question that. Um, and it also makes me realize like what I don't want to question. Like what, what is important to me in terms of my practice and what I'm not really willing to budge on. So I think basically I collaborate once every couple years. Uh, it takes a lot out of me. And then I go back to my studio practice. But it's a great way to in, invigorate stuff.
1: Can you tell us about uh, your work with Mural Arts?
0: The, the the project that I did a couple years ago was through their LEAP projects, which I I don't think actually exists anymore, but it was the local emerging artist projects. They invited me to um, work with a group of school kids. The idea was that I was to introduce them to my practice and then uh, make a piece and in some way involve them. So I decided that I was really going to take it verbatim that as their artist, I was going to go into their school and make what they wanted. First i had them to my studio and we they played in the huts. It was actually this amazing scene where there was maybe a, a dozen a dozen kids in here and they kind of just went How old crazy. Were they? Uh, they were in fourth and fifth grade. I had I pulled out all my like optical viewing devices like so i've all these telescopes and like kind of rudimentary telescopes and air raid sirens and things that honk and whistle and bang and flags and once they realized that they could like touch things then they were just all over the place. And they got it on on a certain level. They were really they were like, this is my hut. It's not your hut. This is my flag. Like, listen to me. Listen to me. And really, it was kind of this beautiful sight. So then, as I offered, okay, well, you know, these are my flags, but you guys can make your own flags. Um, this is in part of a like a lot of them were like, these are like magical lands in here. So I was like, great. Like, you guys can make your own land. What would you want on your ideal land? And so they all requested things, and I made those objects, and I made these little plots of land, and we went and played in a field basically and made up a bunch of games, really acting out kind of a, a, all these kind of like desires around land and future and voice and really all the things that I'm actually thinking about in terms of my work.
2: Did you document this? I mean, this sounds like <laughs> an anthropological experiment. I know.
0: It became really difficult to figure out how it was gonna be a piece. You know, I felt very grateful for the idea that I, could, I was allowed to use this as research
2: well, speaking of research, let's talk about going to clown school. But
1: Other than clownist, I mean, you get back to <laughs> it. Right. We did, and you're
2: not a clown as far as we no. know. You haven't performed as a, clown, I am but not you a went. clown, So it must have been research, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: I did a uh, baby clown training in Northern Ontario, and
2: baby clown training. A baby.
0: I guess that's like the emerging clown. <laughs> I, I have never really been involved in theater stuff even though I actually do some work that uh, fits under the rubric of performance and it is also something that I teach. Um, I have never considered myself a performer. I thought that it would be a good way to shake some things up, find a new language for what I was talking about. I think somewhere, in, with my work, I think somewhere intuitively I knew that um, what, what I'm doing is aligned with clowning. I ended up working with this uh, amazing teacher up in Northern Ontario, John Turner, who agreed that I, I was taking this course actually to think about my work as clowns and not necessarily myself as one.
1: Was that in fact what you discovered was true? Yes. That you yourself weren't the clown and that yes. it was the work? And yeah. that in clowning, you know, like at first it's, it's,
0: it's like, I feel like it makes people smile and then some people are like, I'm scared of clowns. That seems to be the two reactions and clowning is, there is something that's quite uh, uh, endearing about it. but. It is also uh, quite like vulnerable, quite awkward. There's something in that that becomes like that feels very aligned with the way I work. In clowning, there's a real like subversion of the natural order of things. That's it seems to me like where the humor comes from, um, because we understand how things should work, and so then there's a clowning that happens with that.
1: So you have some really good news coming up. <laughs> you want to tell us about it? Where you're off to?
0: Um, i am heading out to portland oregon uh, i got a job as the head of sculpture at um, lewis and clark college so i am going to go out there and uh, embark on this next adventure
1: um so can you tell us uh what you're hoping to do out there
0: i'm excited about the change in landscape i want i want to travel out to some of the desert areas and the canyon lands and there's some pretty amazing stuff near there um, I've been looking at a lot of the early flying machines that were made especially out of like I'm not I see a look of alarm I'm not going to literally fly, fly, but I've been thinking about um, the, battling with the wind and these kind of utopian desires to kind of overcome the landscape and so uh, I've been thinking about embarking on some projects in the desert I'm also preparing for next summer I'm heading up to the Arctic Circle for a residency up there so I'm also thinking about how to prepare for that
2: so what does one do in a residency at the Arctic Circle? I don't know.
0: I I, it's research. So I have to figure out exactly what my research is. Um, and that's that's something that's in development right now.
2: I hope you'll be with other people, yes? I
0: will. Supposedly, we're on a boat. And so it's a, it's a a when you get off the boat, you need to have an armed guard, is my understanding, because of the polar bears. So I think I also have to be very specific about what my research is, because <laughs> I'm not sure I can just be wandering around on an iceberg.
2: Thank you for talking to us. We've been speaking with Jess Perlitz. Jess, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you,
1: everyone. Artblog Radio is brought to you by theartblog.org. Thanks to our sponsors, including the Knight Foundation. Also, we want to thank Peter Crimmins, who makes us sound good. He's our editor. And thanks to Eric Biondo for his music. You can download these podcasts at theartblog.org slash radio.